John chapter 13. John chapter 13. You recall Jesus' three and a half years of public ministry is over. For three and a half years, he walked around Israel, Judea, even Samaria, preaching, teaching, healing, announcing the kingdom. But as he said in chapter 12, the hour has come, it's done. Now, the next thing is his crucifixion. For the next five chapters, 13 through 17, Jesus is alone with his disciples. This is the upper room discourse starting in chapter 13. This is the seventh of seven long discourses in John. John records more of the words of Jesus than any other gospel. This is the longest one for five chapters. But it's precious stuff. Jesus is alone with his disciples. There's no Pharisees around to argue, no crowds to debate with. He's just talking to his disciples, as John says, those that were his. And here you see Jesus' heart. He opens up to them what's really on his heart, what he really wants for them. We see here a whole grand picture of our Savior, who he is, what he wants, how much he loved us. So chapter 13 is a major turning point in John's Gospel. It is Thursday night. And when you have this meal, if I notice chapter 13, verse 1, it says that the Passover meal was near. The Passover is actually on Friday, the next day. It's Thursday night. They're having this meal together. Jesus will be arrested the very next morning, probably very early in the morning, in the whole trial and crucifixion. By 9 o'clock in the morning, the next day, he'll be on the cross. So that's where they are. It's Thursday evening. Remember, remember now, in Jewish reckoning, Thursday evening at sundown is when Friday begins. So technically, according to Jewish reckoning, it's Friday. But it doesn't really matter much. He's alone in a, in a closed room with just him and his 12 apostles. I don't believe there's any women there because they aren't mentioned. And also, this thing he does when he, he, does, he, he strips down to basically his underwear and, and does the washing of the feet, I doubt he would do that if there were any ladies present. I don't think he would have. But Anyway, they're not mentioned. It's just him and his 12 apostles. This is the last Passover. The Passover will forever be changed. There are Christians today who say we should celebrate all those Jewish feasts. I don't argue with that, but we should never celebrate Passover. Not the way they do. The Passover has forever been changed, always. It's now become the Lord's Supper. Passover, he changed it. The meaning of Passover forever for Christians. I mean, the Jews still celebrate Passover, but it's different for us. What's that? He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. Good. Good way to put it. You're right. So the events and the discussions that happen now, starting in chapter 13 up through chapter 17, take place in the upper room, and then he's going to leave there. In fact, notice chapter 14, the last verse, 1431. They spend a good couple hours in the upper room, and 1431 says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me, get up, let us go from here. They leave the upper room, and they're heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane. But on the way, he's still teaching. I believe they pass through a, great, uh, a grove. That's a whole, the vine and the branches. I believe they're walking through a, a, a vineyard. Anyway, but this all takes place Thursday night as they're heading towards uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And here you have several intimate hours with the Messiah. Think about that. You see here into his heart. You see things that he, he wouldn't tell the crowds. And these instructions he gives, chapter 13 and following, to his disciples, by way of extension are to all of us. If you really want to follow Christ, you have to know what's said here. He talks about a lot of subjects to get us ready for his departure and, and, and the, the kingdom age that we're in now. 
So it's beautiful stuff, it really is. Now, verse 1, again. Let's just read a couple of verses, starting in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and washed and wiped them with the towel and with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, says him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, typical foot and mouth, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example, you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And there's a lot packed into this. We're going to take our time and walk through this. Just by review, we saw last week, verse 1. As John, 40 plus years later, looks back on this, thinks about it. John's writing, John's the last one to write a gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written much earlier than this. As John thinks back to that night, knowing all that's happened since, remember, at this Last Supper, they don't know what's about to happen to Jesus. They don't know the crucifixion's the next day. They don't realize that. But John, now looking back, realizing all that happened, he said, man, he loved us. Oh, he loved us. Notice the phrase there. I love it there. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them literally to the uttermost. One thing about Jesus, he loved his own. And John says, just being there with him, the love just must have oozed out of him in his words, in his teaching, and in the things he does. Just looking into his eyes, you would see in him the God-man, that he loved these men. And through them, he loves us. That's great encouragement. I hope you get that. We, we covered that last week. It's so trite today to say Jesus loves you. You hear that so many ways. You see bumper stickers and buttons. That Those three words are some of the most important words you could ever know. If you belong to Christ, if you're born again, you're one of his chosen elect, he loves you. And he loves you to the uttermost. It's, a, it's an amazing thought. Notice it says he loves those who were his. Those whom the Father gave him. Jesus spoke often of this group of people. God the Father chose in eternity past. He gave them to the Son to save us. And John here, looking back, says, Oh boy, he really loved us. He really did. And now knowing about the crucifixion, that adds more weight to that. Though again, this, at this time in John 13, they don't know he's about to be crucified. But he's recalling what Jesus does. I saw there's a church on the corner of Main, Dock Street, and Haven. They're fairly liberal. They're a UCC church. But they got a good thing on their marquee. You know the song, uh, uh, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know? 
Dear Marquise, as Jesus knows me, this I love. I wonder if they know what that even means. I hope they do. I don't know. But that, that's a great saying. That's a great way of looking at that. Jesus knows me, and this I love. I'm one of his elect. I'm one of his sheep. I'm one of those chosen. Boy, what a wonderful thing. And John said, just thinking back on that night, he really, really loved us. When the, and remember, all that's going on. And what John's going to do here now, this whole foot washing thing, John's going to set this up for us. John wants us to realize what's, what's really happening here. The audacity of this whole event. So John goes into pretty graphic details here about, do you realize who it is who did this? Let's just walk through this. John carefully sets the context. He wants us to see the full force of what this really means. Notice he says here, I broke it down in your sheet. First of all, verse, verse 1. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. I mean, we discussed that last week. He knows full well, Jesus is the only one in the room who does what's about to happen. He knows in about 12 hours or so, he's going to be arrested, horribly treated, put to a show trial, beaten, spit upon, slapped, beard pulled out, punched, condemned to death as a blasphemer, marched through the streets, more abuse, more insults, go to Herod, go back to Pilate, then he's going to be scourged, which will, which will almost kill him, and then crucified. He knows that. And he also knows that we discussed it, that that's just the physical suffering. He knows that when he's on that cross, he's going to, his soul's going to become a sin offering. And God's going to do to him what Israel did to those, those, those lambs. He's going to crush him under the weight of God's justice. That's hanging in his mind. John says, Jesus knowing full well what's coming, that his hour had come. This is it. All of his life was leading up to this. This hour had come. So all through chapters 13 through 17, the shadow of the cross is hanging over heavy over all of this. They don't know that, but he certainly does. And John, looking back, says, even with all of that on his mind, and don't think that wasn't heavy in his mind. Remember, he said back in chapter 12, now my soul is troubled. This is scary stuff for him. John says, oh, he loved us. In spite of all that, in fact, because of all that, how he loved us. The shadow of the cross hangs over all of this. So John sets this up. Jesus, knowing full well what's coming, number two, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, or as verse 3 says, he was going back to the Father. Jesus knows full well what's coming. He knows he's going to go to the cross. He knows he's going to die on the cross. He also knows he's going to rise again and return back to heaven to the right hand of God the Father. That's where he came from. Jesus, this is one of those does statements, Jesus fully knows who he is. I don't think his apostles quite do yet. They say things like, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, all that. I don't think it's fully dawned on them exactly how, what that all means, how deep that goes. Jesus is God. That one sitting there in front of them at the table is God in human flesh, sent from heaven by the Father. The Father said to him, go down there, my son, and, and do this and this and that. And he knows, this is all over, I'm going back to him. I'll regain all the glory I gave up. I'll regain all the... Remember, he set aside all of his glory in heaven. He emptied himself, as, as Philippians says. He's going to retake all of that glory back in heaven again. That's coming. He knows that. So he knows as he sits there in front of these 12 guys, I'm God, and I'm going back to heaven. Not long from now. I'm going back to my Father, to sit at his right hand on his throne, to regain everything I set aside. He knows that. He knows, he knows exactly who he is. After this horrible ordeal on the cross, he knows he's going to come through it. It doesn't take away the, the, the pain of it all. And note also there, verse 3. Learning the Greek, it reads, he knows he was going back with God. 
That's the same exact words John uses in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John here says, he was with God then, and now he's going to go back to be with God again. In fact, John 17, he prays about that. Father, I want to come back and have my glory back. I, I, I miss home, basically. I want to come back to heaven where I belong. He doesn't belong here. He belongs there. He knows that. He knows what's coming. He belongs in heaven. I also, number three, knowing that the cross is only hours away, knowing that he's going back to God. Look, look again there in verse three. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. I get that phrase sink in. As he sits there, just this Jewish guy who's about to be arrested, he knows that God the Father has put everything under his authority. Jesus rules the universe. He knows that. He's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, here sitting in front of them. Just one verse I gave you, Colossians 1. I love this verse. Look at all the descriptors here of what Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him, and notice, and they're all for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That verse demonstrates you cannot exaggerate how great Jesus Christ is. Look at that list. He's the image of God, the firstborn of God. He's the creator. All things are made through him, made by him. He's before all things. He's ahead of all things. He runs all things. All things are for him. He's the firstborn of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the fullness of God in bodily form. He is all these things. And John says here in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that God had given all things into his hands, as Jesus sits there, he knows, I am the Lord of all. He is the greatest being in the universe. He's certainly the greatest person on earth. There's no one on earth that's anywhere near to his greatness. And John's setting this up so that, so that what he does next can be seen for how amazing it is. And also, notice there, number four, verse three, or verse two, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. That word literally is the devil already threw, the word balo, threw like a throw a ball, into the heart of Judas to betray him. He, Jesus knows as he sits there, I am the son of God, I am the Lord of heaven and earth, I am the darling of heaven, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to go back to my father, and also I know there's a guy in this room, and I know who he is who's going to betray me. He knows full well. What Judas has in mind, what, what Judas is having in sheep there. Remember, remember right before the triumphal entry, Jesus was with Mary and Martha. And Mary took that expensive, you know, almost a year's worth of pay perfume and poured it over his feet and anointed him. And having a sheet there, Mark 14, Judas and so many other apostles protest. Why was this ointment wasted? I broke this, I shortened this. More than 300 denarii, almost a year's pay, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. 
And Mark adds, then, or because of this, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when, he, when they heard it, they were glad and, and promised they gave him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Whatever's going on in Judas's heart, this incident where, where Mary broke that year's worth of wages perfume drove him to the Pharisees. That's it, I'm out of here. In fact, Matthew says he went to the Pharisees and said, what will you give me to betray him? Judas, John says, loved money. He, he was stealing money out of the money bag. Apparently he thought that Jesus was probably going to bring in this great kingdom on earth and Judas was going to get rich off of it. Realizing that all Jesus knows about is wasting money on perfume and talking about his own death, he gets disgusted and goes to the Pharisees and says, what, what will you pay me if I betray him to you? Don't know exactly what his motive was, but that's what he does. So Jesus knows full well, not only who, but how and when his betrayer is going to, going to betray him. He knows that as he sits there. He's fully aware of his exalted status, John tells us. He's fully aware that he is the sole focus of the Father's love. He's the darling of heaven. The angels adore him. The Father loves him. The Holy Spirit serves and loves him. He has the right to be enthroned in heaven. I have Psalm 2 there in your sheet. It says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have forgotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus knows as he sits there, I am destined to rule the world. All the nations are my inheritance. I rule, I'm on the throne the Father has given me. Think about that. John's setting this up so we get, we get the idea of what's going to happen here. And also, as he sits there, he knows exactly who it is in this room who's planning to betray him. Look at verse 11 of chapter 13. For he knew the one who was betraying him. John wants to make sure we know this, that we know that he knew. Look at verse 18. Jesus said, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Look at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Look at verse 26. Jesus then answered and said, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Now Jesus points out to Peter and John who it is. It's Judas. He knows full well he has an enemy here in the room. Now think about that. If you didn't know how this story ended, if you've never heard this before, you're hearing this story for the first time, what would you think is going to happen next? Here's the Lord of glory, the one whom the Father has given all things into his hand. He's the exalted Son of God. He came from God. He's going back to God. And he knows in this room my betrayer sits. What would you think would happen next? Take him out. Exactly right. You would think that, wouldn't you? Because he's so important, because he's so powerful, because he's the most worthy person on the planet, he would end this right here and there. He would take out Judas and rise up and, and get vengeance. And You would think that's how this would end. If, we, if humans were writing this story, that's what you would expect, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. But you know, that's not what happens. Have yeah, and John gives us all of this detail ahead of time to, to set the stage so we can see how amazing and shocking and audacious what he does next is. Now, as usual, his disciples misunderstand all of this. And they're misbehaving again. This isn't in John, but it's in, it's in Matthew, it's in Mark and Luke. Previously before this, when they were heading towards Capernaum, I have it in your sheet, Mark 9, 
says, on the way to Capernaum, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine us sitting around here in church afterwards saying, well, I'm better than you are, Wayne, because I teach. I'm better than you because, well, no, I'm better than you because I, no, no, I'm greater than you are. Can you imagine talking like that? <laughs> and then when that happened, when, on their way to Capernaum, this is maybe a year before this, Jesus rebukes them. Like, that's the time when he tells them, except you become like a little child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. He rebukes them and tells them, stop acting like this, be humble, be, be like a child. But that didn't end this. And now on the night of the Passover, it's on your sheet there, from Luke. Luke 20, 20, 20 says, as they're in this room, as they're getting ready for the Passover meal, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. Now, probably what's happening there, when you come to a banquet, we don't do this today as much, but in their day, when there was a banquet, the head of the banquet, the master of the banquet sat at the head of the table. And then whoever sat at his right hand and his left hand were the most important people there. And then it would go down from there. You would fight over who got the best seats. Probably they're arguing. Well, Peter said, well, I should sit there because I walked on water. You didn't. Well, no, John said, I should sit there because I'm the one he really loves, and I should do this, and others are saying, well, I should do this, and you're not great. Who, who makes you so great? I'm better than you are. They're arguing over who gets to be honored. I should be honored more than you should. Can you imagine this? These are Jesus' disciples. They're arguing this kind of thing. It's a sad thing to think about, and picture that. They know that Jesus is the Messiah. They know that. And, and he's come to set up his kingdom. He says that. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus spoke all the time about his kingdom. In fact, I have a verse there from Matthew 19. He said this to them. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. So they're thinking, man, I'm going to have a sweet spot. I'm an important person. I am one of the first insiders in this brand new kingdom of the Messiah. And I'm going to be right up front. I'm going to be a great man. They're thinking that. I'm going to rule in Jesus' kingdom. I'm going to be an important person. Therefore, I should sit up front. No, I should because I'm this or that. Yeah. They're arguing this. Who's, who's the greatest? Where you sat was important. They fancied their own glory for this kingdom. Sad thing. And they're arguing this at the Last Supper. I'm sure Jesus is probably just sitting there watching this or hearing this. Thing. So John has this all set up for us. Jesus, who is the most glorious, important human being ever to walk the face of the earth, the darling of heaven, God's favorite, God's Messiah, the one who's going back to sit at his, his in just a few short time from now, he's going to be sitting at God's right hand on the throne of heaven, does something absolutely shocking. And what he's doing here is a lot to this. Jesus, is dem he, he demonstrates, he acts out, as it were, a deep theological truth. Now, what I'm meaning here, if you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, several times God gives them, uh, they act out their prophecies. For example, uh, he's, uh, Jeremiah was told, right before the siege of Jerusalem, when Babylon's going to come in there and destroy the city, raise it to the ground, burn everything, take millions into captivity, destroy Israel, leave it in ruins. God tells Jeremiah, go into Jerusalem and buy a plot of land. Who would buy a piece of land in a, in a doomed city? Why would you do that? The real estate is probably pretty cheap. It's going to be a worthless piece of land because this whole city is going to be destroyed and wiped out, burned to the ground and left desolate. 
But God tells Jeremiah, go in town and buy a piece of land. That's an acted out parable because one day that lands, they are going to come back here and rebuild this city. One day they're going to come back. That's in Jeremiah chapter 32. In other words, God's having the prophet actually act out a demonstration of God's message to Israel. Israel will be rebuilt. The, the, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. So Jeremiah, go buy a piece of that. I think, Jeremiah, you're crazy. We're about to be destroyed. You're buying property here? Ezekiel, Ezekiel was told many weird things to do, but Ezekiel, one of them was told, he was told by God, build yourself a small model of Jerusalem and lay siege against it. In other words, have your little tiny horses and your little men and, and siege Jerusalem. You know, and let everybody see you doing that. What we call an object lesson. Yeah, exactly right. It's, 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 they're acting out as an object lesson of theological truth. I want, Ezekiel was told many strange things to do. Lay on your right side, then lay on your left side, and cook your meals with dung and all this stuff. To tell the nation, take a cloth and bury it in the wall so it gets rotten and pull it out again and show what happens to it. Those are all acted out theological truths, object lessons, demonstrations. Well, Jesus is doing that here. What he does next, he's going to act out an amazing theological truth and from that teach several major lessons. So again, three times here John says, Jesus, knowing that, knowing that, knowing that, all these things are true, says he got up, laid aside his outer garment, girded himself with a, with a towel, poured water into a bowl, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Again, if you didn't know that was coming up next, you would never see that coming. That's totally un, unseen. Now, again, you know this. Few roads in our day were paved. Jerusalem, a lot of the places had stone, but everything's dusty and dirty. Every place you walk was dust and sand and dirt. And... There were many, many animals who walked the streets with you, camels and, and donkeys and dogs and an, all kinds of animals. And few houses had bathrooms. Most of them had what's called the chamber pot. You know what a chamber pot is? Those of you who go had hunting camps. And usually what you do with the chamber pot in the morning is dump it into the gutters or dump it out of a window or dump it out in the streets or whatever. Now, don't picture that. I'm always telling you, picture this. Don't picture that. But anyway, yeah. Don't picture that. Now the disciples for this banquet certainly would have bathed. Jesus says that you you clean yourself up for a banquet like this. But just walking there with sandals on, you're walking through all this mud and filth and animal dung and who knows what's on those streets. Your feet get dirty. Now, it was common etiquette. Remember, when they ate meals, they didn't sit in chairs like we do. They leaned on one side with their feet out behind, around the table. But their feet would be dirty. Now, a guy named Rabbi Ishmael, who lived shortly before this time, he ruled that no Israelite should ever be compelled to wash the feet of their guests. It's that demeaning of a task. It's that evil of a task. In fact, you still see it today in the Middle East. It was true back then. One way you showed protest was to take off your shoes and throw it at somebody. Remember when George Bush was over in Iraq and they were throwing shoes at him? In the Middle East, that's considered a sign of great disrespect because your feet are dirty. Shoes are filthy, dirty things to their mindset. And you would take off your shoes and throw it at somebody as an awful act of insult. Well, it was considered a demeaning, horrible thing to have to wash someone else's feet. And so this rabbi said, no Jew should ever do that. Only the lowest of slaves, or if you had no slaves... Sorry, ladies, the youngest girl in the house would do it. 
was something demeaning and degrading and something that no adult should ever have to do. It would never occur to these disciples, the 12 of them, to wash each other's feet. It would never occur to them. There's no servant here in the house. There's no little slave girl to do it. It also apparently never occurred to them to wash Jesus' feet. He walked there too. And so in the middle of all of that, you can imagine, just picture this, the shocked silence. As they're sitting there and the meal's about to begin, gets quiet, and Jesus gets up, takes his outer robe on, basically strips down to his underwear, wraps a towel around him, goes over and gets a pitcher, fills it with water, and then goes around behind them, person by person, and starts washing their feet. The dust and the dirt and the camel dung, washing it off their feet. And they'd, they'd be sitting there in stunned silence. Who, who would have ever seen that coming? And remember, John sets this up so you realize who this is. This is the one whom the Father has put all things into his hands. And John, as he looks back 40 plus years later, says, man, he loved us. Realizing who he is and what he's about to do, yet he did this. This was reserved for the lowest of slaves. Imagine how shocked you are. Again, notice Peter's response, as you all know. Verse 8. My version says, never shall you wash my feet. Literally, in the Greek, it's a lot stronger. He says, no, my feet you will not wash. It's emphatic. You will not wash my feet, Jesus. Imagine if, I want to say the president, I can't use this president. Imagine if Donald Trump visited your house for dinner. When you're all done, he starts clearing away the dishes. He goes out in the kitchen and starts washing dishes. What, what, what would your natural response be? Sir, no, 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 let that go. We'll take care of that. No, sir, come on, no. You shouldn't be washing my dishes. You're the president. You would think that, wouldn't you? Magnify that by a million times. Here's the Lord of glory, God in human flesh, washing their feet when they never even occurred to them to wash his. And Peter, Peter, as always, foot and mouth disease, he speaks up, no, no, you will never wash my feet, not you. He's shocked. Jesus is humiliating himself. He's degrading himself. He's lowering himself lower than the lowest of slaves. And he's the greatest man in the room. In fact, he'll say there, you call me Lord and teacher, and such I am. That word Lord is that word all through the New Testament. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, God. You call me that, and you're right, I am. And there he is, washing their feet. Stripped down like a slave, carrying a, a, a bowl of water. Remember, when he, remember in, in Luke 4, when he's walking with crowds, all of a sudden a leper shows up, and all the crowds back away in horror. It's a leper, it's a leper. Remember what Jesus does? He gets down to his level and touches him. He publicly, I'm sure all the crowd's going, ugh, ugh. He's touching a leper, ugh, gross. He's publicly humiliating himself. Identifying with this, the lepers were the lowest in society. They were, everyone avoided them, hated them. Their life was miserable. They were, they were a walking disease germ factory in their minds. Ritually, purely unclean. Jesus, Jesus had no second thoughts about getting down, talking to this guy face to face and touching him. Think of that. Remember we just saw back in chapter 12 when Jesus entered Jerusalem as their Messiah. And they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David and Hosanna to the king of Israel. And what he does, he rides on a, says a, a, a donkey, not just a donkey, a, a colt of a donkey, a young donkey. This little tiny animal 
his feet would be dragging on the ground. Again, one commentary says it's almost like running into town in a kiddie car. But Jesus here publicly humiliates himself several times, several times. You know, the Pharisees mocked him as being a friend of sinners and prostitutes and drunkards. While we look at that as something wonderful, in their culture it wasn't. He publicly humiliated. Here's one of the biggest examples of that. I'm sure his men are shocked. He's, imagine you're sitting there and he's washing your feet. You, you'd feel very uncomfortable with this. He shouldn't be washing my feet. In fact, I should be washing his. This was embarrassing. This was degrading. This is something even they would never think about doing. Now get that scene firmly in your mind of what he's just done here. Now there's so much to learn from this. Shirley mentioned some already. There's, we're going to spend another week or two, who knows how long, on this. Of the necessity of being washed from your sin, Jesus says that in verse 10. Unless, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. He, he's visualizing, he's picturing his washing from sin. There's also our obligation to humbly serve one another. Verse 14 will say that. If I, your master, have washed your feet, then you should do it for each other. You should never think anyone's beneath you. Especially among your brethren. You should be willing to do anything. You should be the servant of your brethren. Serve them humbly. Put their needs ahead of your own, as Philippians 2 says. And he's demonstrating that here in a huge way. He's also demonstrating our need to study him. He says, I, if I, your Lord and Master, did this, in other words, we should, we should need to learn from watching him. If I did this, he says, you should do this. You should watch what I do. He's talking here, we'll learn here about the nature of true greatness. Here's the greatest man in the room, in fact, the greatest human being to walk the face of the earth, wiping out dirt between their toes. What true greatness is, as Dean mentioned, the greatest among you, Jesus says, is a servant of all. In other words, you should be a race to the bottom, as Pastor Paul told a while ago, the, the way up is the way down. The greatest person in this church is whoever is the greatest servant. It's not the greatest one who's on the, you know, the, the stars and those who do all the get all the glory or whatever. The greatest person in every church is the one who's, who's serving the most, their, their brother. Jesus taught that. And of course, as he says there, blessed are you if you do it, is, is, is the, the, the truth that it's not enough to know these things and understand. Oh, I agree with that. Jesus says, blessed are you if you do it. Now, that's some important lessons. But for today, I just want to focus on this one point. And this is, first of all, we must, we must consider what this is telling us about Jesus. As, as Carl said, this is one of those demonstrations, an acted out parable of the incarnation. He's demonstrating to them publicly what is, what is, what's going on here. Notice verse 7, he says there, you don't understand this now, but you will later. They don't realize what comes next is the cross. They don't, they don't know that's coming. So you don't understand now what this all means, but you will. Once you get the fact, that what I'm about to do for you and what this, what this washing of your feet was really picturing, later on he says, you're going to get this and it's going to blow your mind. You know, again, John, looking back, gets it. And he goes, oh, he loved us. Oh, boy, did he love us. Just like the crucifixion, looking back, you're going to get it. But now you really don't. They don't know what's about to happen. Now imagine this. Imagine it's 12, 15 hours later. Jesus is hanging on the cross. You're one of his disciples, and you're standing there. What are you thinking as you watch this? What are you thinking? You're wondering. He's the Messiah. He has all this power. He can walk on water and calm storms and create food out of nothing. 
Why is he allowing this? You'd be troubled. I don't understand. Lord, look what they're doing to him. Look at how they're treating him. Look at the pain he's in. Look at how much he's bleeding. Why don't you stop this? What's going on? It would blow your mind. Why doesn't he make this stop? Why is he letting them do this to him? And on that cross, it looks like he's been totally defeated, doesn't it? It's shameful. He may be hanging there naked. I don't know. They often crucify people naked publicly right outside the gates of Jerusalem. Thousands of people from the Passover passing by and go, oh, look at that, this poor guy. It's shame, it's degrading, it's, it's the worst thing you could do to a person in their day. It's the worst treatment you could do to someone. He's been conquered. You could say, they stopped him. They brought him to an end. Why is he allowing this? Why is he doing this? Wouldn't you think that? And Jesus says, you don't understand it now. But afterwards, you will. Just like this foot washing. You don't understand what I'm doing now. But in a little while, you will. Now, this I owe to Sinclair Ferguson. I got this from one of his books. Where Paul talks about this event, what Jesus did, as the greatest event in all of history. The greatest thing anyone could ever do. And he does so almost mimicking or mirroring what you see here in John 13. It's on your sheet there of a chart. The Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus, what he did. And it mirrors exactly what you see here in, in John 13. It's, it sounds like either Paul had this very much in mind or the Holy Spirit just made it work that way. John 13. Jesus says, Jesus, knowing that he had come from God. Well, Philippians 2, 6 and 9 says, though he was in the form of God, Jesus is God himself in heaven. Picture that. Jesus in John 13, knowing he had come from God, he rose from supper, meaning he stopped being served and began to serve, or, or as Philippians says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In heaven, he was the darling of heaven. Everything served and worshipped him. He set all that aside and came down to serve us. So he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, symbolically, or as Paul says, he emptied himself. Now, Jesus never stopped being God. Jesus never gave up his omniscience or his omnipotence. He just laid aside all the privilege, all the glory, all the joys of heaven. Just like at the table there in John 13. Jesus was the master of the ceremony at the head of the table. He was being served. He stopped being served and got up and started serving. Laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, which means he's dressed like a slave now. Slaves carry towels around. Slaves walk around in, in minimal clothing. Taking the form of a servant, Philippians says. Taking, actually, the word there is a slave. Jesus, who was equal with God, laid aside all that privilege, became a slave. Well, John 13 says that. It says he poured water into a basin. That's what slaves do. The master of the ceremony does not fill basins full of water. Jesus. In other words, Paul is talking about this event, not just the foot washing, but the crucifixion, all he did, how, how high he was and how low he went as being one of the greatest things anyone has ever done. This is, this is in Paul's description, the greatest event ever. This all pictures the wonder of the incarnation. Think of it. I know we know this. This is, this is facts stored away in our, in our Christian database. But do you, you ever think about how, what this involves? 
Picture the angels. Peter says the angels long to look into the things that concern salvation. I imagine they don't get it because they don't have a savior. They don't. They don't need one. There's no savior for them, and and they adore and worship and love Jesus Christ as the height of their of their being. They worshipped him from eternity. To see him leave there, become into this stinking, corrupt, dirty, sick, dying world as one of us. Not just one of us. He didn't come down here to be king of the world. He came down here to be the lowest slave and to submit himself to crucifixion. I'm hearing the angels are scratching. I was like, what is he doing? Why would he do that? You can't go any lower than that. You know, if one of these disciples would have got up and started washing their feet, he'd be lowering himself a little bit. This is the Lord of glory, the one whom the Father has put all things into his hands, the one who Psalm 2 says is the king installed on Zion's hill, the nations are his inheritance. He is king of kings, lord of lords, the most adored person in the universe. Not only is he washing their feet, in just a few hours he's going to be, he's going to be crucified for them. That's the picture here. That's what we're meant to see here. Philippians 2.9 says, because of that, therefore, Paul says, because he, he left heaven emptied himself, took the form of a slave, and even lowered himself to the point of a cross death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is the greatest thing anyone has ever done. And that's not an exaggeration. Can you think of anything greater than this? Has anyone ever gone so low for others? No. No. Just the fact that he'd wash their feet is a visible picture of what's going on here. I'm sure in Peter's mind, he knows this is the Son of God. He knows they confess that. Son of God's washing my feet. What, what does that mean? Well, they'll find out in a powerful way after the crucifixion what that means. Look what he's willing to do for them. It's the greatest thing ever done. And Paul lays that out. And, and it's amazing, this parallel between Philippians 2 and what happens here in chapter 13 of John. The humiliation of Christ. The, the, the willing willful humiliation of Jesus Christ. And of course, uh, uh, we're going to see this, Philippians 2.5. We're told this at the beginning of this. This is all meant to be a powerful example to us as disciples. Paul says, have this attitude in yourself. You should think the same way he did. Which is what? Which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, emptied himself. Jesus here says, you see what I've done? Do likewise. If I, your Lord and Master, can stoop so low as to wash your feet, don't you ever think anything's too low for you to do for someone else? To serve your brothers, to serve your sisters. Don't you ever think they're beneath you. Don't ever think they're a bother. You can, you can imagine Jesus would have the right to say, I'm not washing their feet. I'm the King of Kings. I'm not going to do this for them. They, I, they should be doing this for me. He had every right to say that. He laid that right aside, just like even in a much bigger way in heaven. He had every right to say, I'm the king of heaven. I'm God the Father's adored son. I'm on my royal throne. All the angels worship me. I'm not giving this up. He laid it all aside. Came down here and did what he did. So think of it. The God, our God, humbled himself. God humbled himself. Why would God humble himself? Beneath us, he took the lowest form of a slave and took the lowest form of, a, of death for us to rescue us, to gather us, to exalt us. 
he publicly humiliated himself, put himself through the, one of the worst ordeals a human being can ever go through. Because you're always left with the question, why would he do that? Well, John tells us, verse 1, oh, how he loved us. Those whom the Father had given him, those who were his own, oh, how he loved them. He did this because he loved us. He's washing their feet because he loves them. And he wants them to get this message through their thick heads. Or as John will say in 1 John, which is written probably after the gospel, 1 John 3, 1, what manner of, behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the children of God? That word, what manner, comes from a Greek phrase that means what country. John's saying, where did this come from? Who would ever have thought God himself would lower himself beneath me to lift me up? God himself would serve me. None of you are the greatest unless you're serving one another. The greatest among you is your greatest servant. You're not great because you do this. You're great because you serve. Not only serve, you serve humbly. You serve sacrificially. He gave us an example. that It's just like, I often think like Ephesians 5, and God tells the husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a high calling. Well, so is this. You serve your brethren like I did. No, you give your life for them. You lay your life down. You don't care how, how, how degrading it gets, how abused you are, how humbling you have to be. You serve one another like that. Do you think that would make a difference in the world if they saw the church like that? Boy, it certainly would. When missionaries go out and Christians go out into the most poorest communities and poorest places of the world and love these people, that's what changed the world. That's what turns it upside down. Where'd that love come from? John 3.16, God so loved the world. This whole thing, John's writing this in a way that it's supposed to astound us. You know, imagine again, imagine reading this for the first time. John's writing to probably a largely Greek audience. In Greek culture, you would never do this. You would never expect this. And I'm sure the first time they read this, like, what? What did he do? And this is all an acted out demonstration of what's about to happen 12 hours later when he goes to the cross. So before we get into all the little details of this, and they're not little, of course, but all the, the lessons we can learn from this and the example he set, you've got to at least start with this. Do you realize how far Jesus had to go down to save you? No one's ever gone farther down than he did. I mean, if Trump came to my house and washed my dishes, that would be beneath him, but that's nothing compared to the Lord of heaven, God himself, my creator, leaving all that beside, becoming a slave to wash my feet and to die on that cross for me. That's amazing stuff. I've called it the exaltation of humility. It's not meant to be a joke. It's true. We have a Savior who loves us. And as John says, oh, he loves us to the uttermost. And he proves it here for what he's doing, what he's demonstrating here. I hope you can feel that. We are, are, as I said last time, we're in a good place. If our Savior, if our God loves us like this, we're in a good place. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, we read these words of what our Savior did. And Lord, we marvel. Oh, Lord, we are glad that this is our Savior. Lord, he truly is the most exalted, glorious, wonderful, adorable being in the universe. You yourself said so. He's your darling son whom you're well pleased. 
He's the one the angels adore. He's the one with all power and glory and might and wisdom and honor. It's all His and rightfully so. He's the one. In Psalm 2, you sat upon the throne and gave the nations to Him as His inheritance. But Lord, He's the one who came down here and became the lowest of slaves for us. He, he, he submitted to, He actually walked into and caused it to happen. The beatings and the humiliations and the mockings and the, the blood and the gore and the, and the pain and all that and then going to the cross. And Lord, he, he willingly did that. Washing their feet was just a metaphor for what was going to happen on that cross. Lord, this kind of love is indescribable. Lord, we don't know how to even process this. I don't. Lord, thank you for loving us. Truly, you have loved us to the uttermost. We are loved people. You're elect. You're chosen. Those whom you have come to through the power of the Holy Spirit, Father. We, your people, your church, oh, we are loved. Lord, help us to remind us ourselves of this often. Lord, this is meant to bring us great comfort. If our Savior, who is God himself, loved us like this, then we are loved everlastingly. Lord, we are in a good place. You have so demonstrated to us how much you love us. Lord, help us in all of our daily affairs and our troubles and our trials and the hardships to remember this that you have loved us with everlasting love and you came down so low to get us how we should adore you, how we should love you, lift you high, exalt your name. Lord, you are great. You are good. Thank you for loving us. There's nothing in us that makes us lovely. It's you who chose to love and we thank you for it. Lord, your sacrifice to us was immense. Lord, help us never to think that any sacrifice for you is too much. Lord, break us by these things. Break our hearts. Break our pride. Break our will. Cause us, Lord, truly to see one another as truly worthy of our, of our service, of, our, of humbling ourselves for their sake, like you did for us. Lord, help, forget us forever thinking that someone else's needs is, is beneath us and we're too important to help them. Lord, you certainly didn't think like that. So again, thank you for this word. Thank you for revealing to us the heart of our Savior. Help us, Lord, to believe this to feel this, to live in the light of these truths. Lord, I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.